Well, good morning, saints. Here we go again. It's a funny old life. Um, I've been really thrilled to be here again. Uh, just wonderful to hang out with friends and family. I love the vineyard. They feel like family. The church of England is my church, but this always feels like my family. And it's, uh, so I'm slightly schizophrenic over it, but I just love hanging out with you guys. And I particularly uh, have loved the worship. I felt a real anointing on it over the last few days, just very special. And uh, I particularly love the dancers. Uh, I'm a bit old school, really, so it's not my cup of tea. And, you know, there's a lot of weight to me, so moving me is a bit like shifting the... It's not going to happen, really, but just, I, I just felt moved by it all. And uh, I want to thank you also for all your kind words and encouragement. And I thought last night was really special, just being here, witnessing, observing God, you know, putting a stake in the ground and uh, raising an Ebenezer or an altar and, and, and the word of the Lord coming to you as a movement. Movements are movements because they're meant to move. And, uh, you know, this is a movement on the move. And, you know, doubling in, 20, in 10 years, perfectly reasonable parable of the sower says that the seed returns a hundred times not just double so why not why not another hundred churches I believe for it and uh, I was thrilled to be here uh, to hear that and I loved those prophecies earlier on I didn't know where they were coming from so that rather freaked me out uh, I was sort of looking up you know I was expecting angels to come and chariots and stuff like that but um, <clears throat> then I heard someone was at the back with a mic but the interesting thing was that in the first prophecy that I had a verse going through my mind during the worship and I couldn't find it in my concordance. And uh, I, so I went on Google. I know some of you thought, oh, look at him. What sort of a fat religious vicar is he? He's Googling, he's doing his emails, we're worshiping, he's texting. But no, I was seeking the Lord for revelation. Um, and uh, through Google, and I found the verse. You know, you've got to redeem the structures. And I found the verse that said, all my springs are in you. And I wrote it down just as you said it. I couldn't believe it. I elbowed Rick before me, beside me. I told him about it. He was an unbeliever. But there it was. <laughs> I've written it down. I wrote it at the very second. What does that mean? I got no idea, but I liked it. And it proves I'm a charismatic too. <laughs> so that's what I think that was about. All our springs are in him. All our fountains are found in him. He's the altogether lovely one. Fairest among 10,000. He's so wonderful. And in him are we satisfied our fountains are in him and so often we look elsewhere to f as it were to find a fountain to satisfy us but all our fountains all our springs are in him where we are washed where we are refreshed that source of life in him let's pray father 
We bless you. We thank you for your presence, O oh God. We thank you that all our fountains, all our springs are in you. And we want, even today, Lord, to see those springs bubble up and overflow. You're the source of living water. Pour that out on us as individuals. Pour it out on our churches. Pour it out over our churches. Pour it out through the doors, out into our neighborhoods and communities. Bring life, Lord. And we bless you, Lord. I am my beloved's and he is mine. We pray this morning you would stir our affection for you again. And we bless you, Lord. Amen. Well, some of you may be pleased to know I'm not going to do a parable this morning. I want to uh, share something else, a, a word that, that just stirs me and was stirring me yesterday afternoon and then it's certainly in the evening. You know, we, we have the mandate to go. And we have the means, which is the gospel and the power of the Spirit. Uh, and we have various motivations, you know, the needs of the world, the command of the Lord, and so on. We've got that mandate, we've got motives. But what keeps us going and going and going is the love of God. St. Paul said, the love of Christ compels me, constraineth me. It's the love of Christ that fills me and flows out through me, says Paul, that keeps me going. And if the vineyard is to see 100% growth in the next 10 years, it won't come as a result simply of duty or as a result of the decree from the leaderships. It will come as an overflow of delight in God and God's delight for you. That's what gets you up in the morning. That's what gets you out in the morning. That's what... That's what stirs and motivates and compels and impels you forward. It's not that the Holy Spirit comes not simply to be power for service, but to just engulf us with the affections of God. He shed abroad the love of God in our hearts by the Spirit. First fruit of the Spirit is love. And so we say, come Holy Spirit, not just for power, but for love. And many of us need to know that more. Many of us have had times when we knew that love. You know, deep intimacy and passion and the affections of God. But ministry can get in the way between us and God. Do we know that? Church can get in the way sometimes between us and God. And I want us to reflect on a very simple thought this morning about the love of God. If you've got your Bibles, let's turn to John 21. And uh, it's a resurrection story. And the Lord Jesus has sent the disciples to Galilee and they're fishing. They've caught out and then they see the Lord Jesus. He's managed to catch something and he's prepared breakfast for them. And he's there at a fire. Verse 15 of 21. When they had finished breakfast, I've always liked that. The Lord encourages us to tuck in. And uh, 
I am a man who has entered fully into the uh, decrees of God on that. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I tell you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. By this he so he said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who'd been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said, none of your business. Okay. When I was an ordinand training at Theological Cemetery for the ministry, my very first assignment was to write a, a, an essay based upon a sort of exegesis, a, an opening out of the Greek text of this passage. And it was set to us by our Greek tutor, a lady called Margaret Embry, who was about four foot four, and she was a kind of female Yoda. And... Uh, <laughs> She looked similar, and um, her lightsaber was a Greek textbook, and Ponsonby translate, panic attack. And, um, and, she, and she got us to write an essay on this. I wrote an essay on it. It came back, and she wrote all over the bottom in red, too preachy. I thought, that's the job, I thought, but obviously not. Um, uh, really. And we were asked to look at, and, and you'll know, you've all preached on this. I'm simply reminding you that there are various couplets here and there are various contrasts between the words so it makes a distinction in the Greek between sheep and lambs it makes a distinction between the word know two different sorts of knowing here it makes a distinction between feeding and tending and then the main distinction that we've all seen and all heard sermons about is around the word love and Jesus asks Peter whether Peter loves him and he employs the word, the most precious, the most rare, the most um, particular word for love. This was the extreme form of love, the love that you know, causes you to cross oceans and slay dragons to win your beloved. This is the sort of vintage Grand Cru kind of love, agape. And he employs that word, do you love me with this agape love? And Peter responds with a lesser love, the filio love, the love between brother the love of family Jesus then asks him a second time do you love me with this agape love Peter responds with this lesser love yes I do love you but not with the love you ask me with this lower love and then Jesus drops it down do you even love me with this filio love Peter says you know everything you know that I love you he gets sad at the third time because it at that point the penny drops as we'll see 
And I think I got so bogged down writing that essay 20 years ago that, you know, looking at the subtleties of the Greek that I missed the point. And I think that dear old Greek tutor, right at the start of our preparation for ministry, was wanting us to understand what was the foundation for ministry. What was the basis for it? What was the impulse for it? What was the point of it all? And it was that we're loved and that God wants us to love him. Before we do anything else, before we feed, before we tend, before we go and become under shepherds, under the great shepherd, we are called to that affirmation, to that place of affections, to that place of devotion to him. I believe that the greatest need in Christian leadership, in Christian ministry, and in our churches is an experience, a daily renewing of that experience of the love of God. I've got two simple points that they'll come as questions. The first is this. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Do you love him? In this passage, the resurrected Jesus is confronting, as we know, Peter's denial. And many of you will have taught on it. You've all done your studies. You'll know that Peter denied Jesus while standing at a fire. And John tells us there is the Lord Jesus at a charcoal fire. There's all the, the smell and, and the resonance with just days before when Peter had denied him, the Lord Jesus has just taken him back through his senses to that place and that denial. The Lord Jesus confronts his denial and he's giving Peter an opportunity to undo, to rewind, to go back, to erase, to recant, to repent, to cover over that terrible failure of just days before. And the reason he does it is because the Lord Jesus wants forgiveness to be the experience and mark of Peter's life, not failure. Failure shall not have the last word. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. You will return and you will strengthen them. Forgiveness, not failure. And this, of course, reveals something of the fundamental nature and character of God. A God of grace. Grace upon grace. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Grace upon grace. Grace after grace. He is ever the God of the second chance. It's what this text tells us. The church is not good at this, but God is good at it. And just as well. Because if he wasn't, many of us wouldn't be here. Jesus could have started again. Jesus could have found another leader. But he wanted rather to restore than to remove and reappoint. You remember two years ago, I remember speaking at this conference and uh, 
you remember those who were there, that awful illustration, because my signet ring fell in the toilet. Do you remember that? And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, it, was, it fell in the toilet after I'd been to the toilet. I know, it's just terrible, isn't it? And I remember thinking, you know, I, I was confronted with a, with a choice. What do I do? Do I flush it, claim the insurance, and have a new, get a new one? And, or do I stick my hand in the toilet after the remains of the day? And, no, and dig around, find my ring. And I know some of you are saying, bad form, Ponsonby. But that ring meant a lot to me, and I went in after it. And developed obsessive-compulsive hygiene problem ever since. <laughs> I mean, I did, look. <laughs> Neurotic. <laughs> but the point was, do I flush it and start again, or do I get it? Well, I had it made for me, and it meant, it was, my wife got it for me. It meant a lot to me. I'm not going to flush that away. The Lord doesn't just flush us away. The Lord rescues us. Some of you are offended by that illustration. You think, just inappropriate, Ponsonby. You ought to have a look at yourself and your sin sometime. That, is, that really stinks. What was left in the toilet pan was natural. Some of the sin in your life is not natural. It is contrary to everything about the nature and character of God and how he ordained you to be. That's what sin is. But God doesn't flush us away. He comes to rescue, to restore, to clean, to renew. That's our God. That is our gospel. We experience it ourselves and then we go out there and tell people clothed in sin with the mark of death on their life, surrounded by the work and nutrition of the enemy. God can really make a difference in your life. done it in me, he can do it in you. Some of us have forgotten what he's done for us. Three times Peter denied Jesus. And you'll know that in Semitic thought, three represents fullness and totality. Holy, holy, holy. Three times Peter denies fully, completely, totally, unequivocally, he had blown it. And three times the Lord Jesus asked him, do you love me? And every time he asks that question, it's as if that shadow or stake in his soul is taken out. Simon, do you love me? Agape love. That's the love that he has for us. He says, I don't love you that much. You and I both know I don't love you that much. I blew it. I let you down. I denied you. But I do love you. Jesus said, that'll do takes the stake out of his soul, feed the sheep. You get the job. What? But I've, I've demonstrated I'm unworthy. I like that. Good point. You still get the job. Simon, do you love me? You know that I love you. Good. Stake comes out. Shadow removed. Tender lambs. And then on the third time, he asks him, you having loaded? Peter gets it. Oh, three times. The Lord had taken him back to that dark place in his memory, in his mind, in his soul, and healed him. Nothing you have ever done is beyond the grace of God. 
beyond his forgiveness, beyond his restoration. Before Peter can face the future, Jesus needs to deal and heal the past. Some of you are handicapped in your ministry as leaders because you're just carrying around too much baggage from the past. We need to get healed. We need God to invade our soul. We need those shadows or stakes to be lifted off. We need God to come into those painful places, those scars, and heal them. Three times, Peter denies. But denial is not the last word. His mess is not the last word. Grace is. I wonder if there are some here today in ministry and you think, I've really blown it. I don't know how to go on. I feel so guilty. I feel such a failure. And the enemy is always close to those who've let, him, let the Lord down with accusation and condemnation just crushing our soul. Even as we were worshipping, you're thinking, I can't put my hands in the air. I can't lift my eyes to the heavens because I feel full of shame or guilt or failure. The enemy quickly reminds you things from the past. Nothing, nothing is beyond the grace of God. Peter replies with a lesser love. Our love is always less than God's love for us. Three times there is an affirmation of devotion. Three times there's a commission. Love is the basis of our mission. Simon, do you love me? I do. Feed my sheep. One of the great leaders in church growth, and he's a good man, written some good stuff, built some amazing churches. But he has suggested a series of axioms for leadership. Many of them are good. But here's one I don't really like, although I understand it. Reward high performers, remove underperformers. Now that sounds good, and if you work for Coca-Cola, I, I think it'd be appropriate. But Jesus gets the underperformer and makes him pope. Now, don't get me wrong. If a minister is in continual habitual sin that is of a public, you know, serious nature, they should be removed from ministry. Uh, but I do believe they can be restored. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying, look at the text and look at the facts. The greatest underperformer gets the top job. So often our value judgments are predicated on the world's way of thinking. We, re we, uh, we preach grace because we've experienced grace. We preach that which we know. Love covers a multitude of sins. Christ's love for him covers a multitude of sins. His affirmation of love for Christ covers a multitude of sins. The thing here is that the call to leadership in his case, the call to apostleship is first and foremost a call into relationship. Simon, do you love me? Yes, feed the sheep. The commission follows the affirmation of devotion. 
The commission follows the affection. And some of us are at, are at work and doing the commission stuff without the affection. And we need him to stir it up. Stir our affections. Leon Morris, a great New Testament professor, said this. Loving Jesus is the fundamental qualification for service. Other qualities may be desirable. Love is indispensable. I have seen in our church, not my home church, my congregation, but the Church of England and any church, people get promoted on the basis of gifts. And you can often find those who get promoted, those gifts are just the same gifts that be used in the corporate world. So we bless the natural in people. Now that's okay. But often those who walk closest to God or have the most anointed may not have those other gifts, but often we look and think in such worldly ways. This text radically subverts that and questions how we look and how we choose those who lead. The great tragedy is that the church is full of leaders who don't love the Lord. They just want to lead. They like power. They like leadership. They like authority. They like the platform. They like the mic. They like the guitar. You know, in the Church of England at one point, there was 200 vicars who were atheists and members of the Sea of Faith organization, which was essentially a sort of neo-Buddhist organization based on Don Cupid's philosophy in the church. A couple hundred vicars who don't believe every week they say the creed with the fingers crossed. I mean, what's that about? There's one church I heard about in the Anglican communion in Britain where in the church they've got a cross and on the left a Shiva and on the right a statue of Buddha. And the vicar says, you know, well, quite, you know, he likes to climb up on the mountain outside of his house and lie there on the hill, communing with Gaia. I mean, what on earth are you on about? And he may well have had his first class BA and his MA and his PhD, but it's not worth a hill of beans. It's baggage if he doesn't have a heart and affection for God. In the process of going forward for ordination, I had a lot of interviews, more than most, because they were most concerned about whether I should join the club. There they were. And I had to go and see Admiral this and you know, someone there, and all these different people. What do we think? What are we going to make of this guy? They asked me all sorts of questions about my education and my background and my spirituality. Not one of them ever asked me, do you love him? Do you love the Lord Jesus? No one ever asked me that. I mean, that was the one thing I thought I brought to the table. I reckon, you know, I said, I said, I've got that answer ready. Go on, ask me the question. Yes, I do. You're in. He did never ask me. What school did you go to? I didn't really go to school much, you know. What? You know? What? We don't think we've ever ordained a butcher in the Church of England before. Now's your chance. Come on. <laughs> no one ever said you love me. The ordination service for the Church of England is brilliant. If you've ever read the ordinal, it's wonderful. What is expected of a minister? And then towards the end it says, because you cannot do this ministry, 
in your own strength. Pray daily for the power of the Spirit. Devote yourself to the Word. But not one question addresses affections. Do you love him? It seems to be the last thing on the list. It's the first on God's. It's the first. The most effective disciple is not the most educated, the most gifted, but the most passionate about Jesus. It is the one who glows and who overflows with affection. Jesus didn't say to Peter, have you got a good degree? Have you got a good pedigree? Do you look good in a cassock? Have you, you know, are, are you Myers-Briggs compatibility? Have you done your Belbin leadership, you know, relational sort of profile analysis, psychological, pseudo-Jungian stuff thing? You know, whatever. Do you love me? I do, you're in. Do you like that? I love that. And it's in the text. And I know many of you sat there raising objections. Yeah, I know, but, but read the text, saints, and live the text. We need to have that affection for God. One of my heroes is Samuel Rutherford, a royal fighting Puritan, got imprisoned in Aberdeen for his faith and his stance. And he would write on the top of his letters from Christ's palace in Aberdeen. He was in jail. He says, lock me up. Brilliant. It's just an opportunity for a tryst with the Lord. I love it. It's peace. He said this. I don't know which person of the Trinity I love more. I know this. I love each of them and I need them all. I love them all. He said, in one of his letters, he says, love has taken off his mask and said, kiss thy fill. Do you, do you know that? Do you know that relationship with the Lord? I love him and he loves me. See, when you know that, you've got something to say. You've got something to give away. The Welsh revival began in the early 1904 in Welsh... Where, in uh, Welsh Wales, as opposed to the English bit in Hereford. Um, no, as in uh, West Wales is what I wrote. And we all know that Evan Roberts sought God for a year, every night woken up on his knees, punching a hole into heaven, praying for 100,000. He had a prayer, and the prayer went like this, Lord, send your spirit for Jesus Christ's sake. Lord, send your spirit powerfully for Jesus Christ's sake. Lord, send your spirit even more powerfully for Jesus Christ's sake. Lord, send your spirit still even more powerfully for Jesus Christ's sake. And God did. But how did it actually begin? What was the catalyst? What struck the match? A young girl called Florrie Evans, who later traveled with him around giving a testimony. She went to her pastor. He was called Pastor Jenkins. She said, I long for spiritual joy and peace. And the, and the pastor just said, go and surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Go and give him everything. Submit to his leading. Submit to the Spirit. Go home. Surrender. It's the key to the higher life. Surrender. You've got to give away. Give him everything. She came back two weeks later. She looked different. She was glowing. Just a young slip of a thing in her teens. The pastor said, do you want to say something to the church? She said, I do. 
and she stood up in front of the church and she said this, I love Jesus with all my heart. And the power of God fell. The spirit of God fell on the church, fell on everyone. They were overwhelmed with the spirit. The doors, as it were, flung open and the spirit of God fell on that church and then rushed through all the valleys. That was the moment. Her affections for God, her love. You see, when we love him, he draws near to us. Our love woos him. Our love welcomes him. Our love bids him welcome. And when he comes, he comes in power with all his perfections. And then you have revival. 100,000 people saved in six months. Many killed on the battlefields of Somme and Ypres. Amazing. God saved a generation of young people in that nation. But the love of God was at the core. The theologian Abraham Kuyper, Dutch theologian, said this. And it's strange, but I think it's true. He said, even the heart of God thirsts after love. The Old Testament tells us that God is jealous for our affection. What is the first commandment? Is it prohibition? Thou shalt not? That's how most, many of us live our religion. The first commandment and the greatest commandment is affection. Love God. Love God. With all your heart. Not first your head. With all, with all your heart, soul, and strength. What you do, your strength, is the last of it. The first of it is your heart. Love God with your heart. Love him with your affections. Bring yourself to him. The first commandment is love God with your heart. Over everything else, love him. I'm laboring the point, but it's a good one. Total surrender is what Peter would give. Jesus says, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Peter says, I tell you the truth. You know, when you were young, you went where you wanted and so on. But when you're old, you'll be led where you do not want to go. And by this, he was prophesying about the kind of death that Peter would go through that would glorify God. Before this restoration, before the filling of the Spirit, before this revelation of the love of God, Peter denies Jesus. But after the revelation, after the restoration, Peter dies for Jesus. And what changed? Well, one was the encounter with the Spirit. But first and foremost, it was an encounter with the resurrected Christ who said, who forgave him and who restored him. Do you love him? Was there ever a time when you loved him more? Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, You've forsaken your first love. Yeah, you're busy doing this and that, and I commend you for it, and it's brilliant, good effort, but you've forsaken your first love. What was that? You've forsaken loving God. Now, what is, you know, now this is just a duty and a ministry. It's no longer a delight. That is the overflow of affection and relationship and intimacy with me. Was there ever a time when you loved him more? Have you allowed that love for God to be eclipsed? For some, you know, ministry itself can do it. Just that attrition of life to come between you and the Lord. 
You no longer get up in the morning and read your Bibles. You no longer lie on your face before the Lord. You no longer got your tapes on, just adoring him in his presence. The Lord wants to stir your affections for him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Don't look around at all the other people and all the other gifts that they've got and their church being bigger than yours and more blessed. Work on you loving him. And I tell you, it's an attractive thing. When you're in love with Christ, people will come and say, what is it you've got? Wesley said, I set myself on fire and people came to watch me burn. I set myself on fire and men came to watch me burn. They asked him the secret of his success. He said, I caught fire. He began with the heart strangely warmed, moving from the faith of a slave to the faith of a son. Warm with the love of God. Have you allowed stuff to get in the way of your love for God? Be it your job, your ministry, family, hobbies, strain. Shakespeare's Desdemona says, When I love thee not, chaos is come again. I tell you, when we don't love God, things start unraveling. It just begins to unravel. That was the first question. Six minutes, the second one. Sorry about that. Do you know he loves you? Do you know he loves you? He wants you to love him, but first he loves us. Our love is always a response to his love. You know, I'm from the West Country. People keep coming up and saying, where's, you know, now and again, you know, we think you're this sort of posh chap from Oxford and then we see you and realize you're not. And, but now and again, we hear this accent, where is that? Well, I lived half my life in Plymouth and half uh, until I was 30 in Bristol. So it's, it's, I'm West Country. But in Bristol, they call everyone my love. Or if you're from Bedminster, my lover. Um, and in fact, the council workers have just released an edict saying no one is allowed to, a council worker is not allowed to say to a member of the public, my lover. So people answer the phone. I'm ringing up about my you know, council rebate. All right, my lover, now bits. You know, you know what? No, what the, you know, you know, get on the bus. All right, my lover, one pound. Um, they just say, no, we can't, we can't, we can't. But I'm going to keep saying it. St. John says we love because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. I don't need to work it up and whip it up and crank it up. I'm simply responding to his affections for me. He loves me. It's, it amazes me that he loves me. I often don't love myself. I look at myself in the mirror sometimes and think, no, I don't. I think, oh, what a... He loves me. I was with a, a young lady, not with, but talking to, about two years ago, and she hated herself. She, was, she tortured herself, anorexic, self-harm, terrible, terrible state. I said, I want you to go and write on your mirror with your red lippy. Get the brightest scarlet red lippy you've got and you write on the top of your mirror, God loves me, I'm beautiful. She went, what? I said, just do it. She went, oh, God loves me. She could never keep down a relationship. She hated herself. She didn't think she was lovely. Therefore, she was never in, involved in a relationship. That was maybe three years ago. She's now ordained, married, 
a child. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Some of you don't love yourself because you don't feel lovely. Dark words spoken over your life. And they've cut deep into your soul. You hear it, but you don't believe it. You hear the verses, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish. You think, yeah, I know the verse, but you don't feel it. You don't include yourself in it. Greater love hath no man than this than he laid down his life for his friend. You know, I know all that. Greater love, you know, God demonstrated his love in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous. You think, I know all the verses. I preach the sermons, vicar. But do you know it? You know, you can know it here, even here, but not here. We're to love him with our heart. We're to know he loves us in our heart. Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher who never married the woman he loved and lived with that and was tormented by it all his life. Yet he says this, God, in his journal, God loved us first. If I rise at dawn, the very second my soul awakens and turns to you in prayer, you have already beat me to it. I mean, that was cool language in 1830. You've already beat me to it. He says, you've already turned to me in love. He says, the minute I turn to you, you're there and you love me. I don't get the woman I want, but I get God. And he loves me. He loves me. Where do we get this from the text? Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This was the one who'd been reclining at the table close to him and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. I've never liked St. John. I never have. In fact, the medievals portrayed him in, our, in portraiture as a woman. Not that I'm, I don't know what point I'm making with that. I'm just saying I never got on with him. I thought, what sort of a bloke are you? You know. And, it, and in fact, if I was Peter, I'd have been really annoyed. I'm having an intimate moment with Christ. He's restoring me. He's taking stakes out of my soul. And I'm turning around, and there's that weasel, John. And I'm thinking, they've been clear of. Who do you think you are? Get out. This is my moment. They've been, you know, it just ticked me off. He's always there. Leaning on the beloved. What's all that about? <laughs> Come on, get off him. <laughs> Go and do some press-ups or something. What do you want about? <laughs> but I never liked him. And I, I always felt that this implied favoritism. And the annoying thing is, he says it six times. John says that John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we find it in what letter? John. You know, it's like he walks around you know, with one of them t-shirts, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. I think, no. You know what I mean? And I always read it. I felt it implied favoritism because I thought, dear Lord, Jesus really did love him. And he could say that. Can I say that? And for many years, even in ministry, I didn't feel it. I ministered out of duty. I ministered because the gospel amazed me. I ministered because I knew what it was to be lost, full of sin, surrounded by death and going to hell. And I knew what it was to be rescued. 
I knew that. And I'd experienced the power and presence of God. And I had had a revelation about the gospel and the lordship of Christ. And I gave my life to proclaim it. But love? I didn't feel very loved. I didn't feel very lovely. And my own insecurities and inadequacies and inferiorities sort of put a callus around my heart so that God couldn't really, I couldn't feel his love. And I would look at texts like this and think, yeah, Jesus really loved him. But I'm, you know, I'm third class. And I would look around in the church and think, of course God loves them. Of course God loves, you know, Ellie. I was going to say John and Ellie, but of course God loves Ellie. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, I I, I was in, at the time, I was being mentored by David McInnes. I think, of course God loves you. Who wouldn't? You're amazing. And, you know, I'd meet certain people. I'd say, of course God's going to use you. And I, I tried to sort of squeeze a bit more out of God. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work harder to get more of your love. I'll work for it. I'll, you know, we've got to give 10% of our income, says Scripture, although I, I, we can debate that later. I think under Christ we've got to give everything. But I'll give 12%, you know. Meant to have a quiet time. I remember saying to the milkman, who worked, you know, remember Milkman days? I love using old illustrations, you know. <laughs> Seasoned ones, like a Chateau Margot from 1982 laid down. I say, I said, you know, I said, what time do you start work? He said, four o'clock. I thought, you work for Unigate. I work for God. I'm getting up at quarter to four. <laughs> I th- and in my town, I thought, I'm the first person up because I work for God. Notice me. I mean, I spent five hours in a quiet time snoring, but I, I did get up. I sit there with my uh, dribble. <laughs> uh, awful, awful. Nearly had a breakdown. It half killed me. Just wanting to be loved. I just wanted to somehow move up the ranks. Come on, God. You know, if our religion is not based on love, it'll be based on legalism. We end up like the older, prod- the older brother instead of the prodigal son. Prodigal son, he knew what his father was like.